Let me say, first of all, by way of introduction, many religious people in the world acknowledge the Bible's denunciation of drunkenness and strong drink. At the same time, honest questions are raised about what one should conclude about Jesus being a wine drinker and his changing water into wine at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Many times today, people justify social drinking on the basis that Jesus himself turned water into wine. But what did Jesus actually make? Interestingly, there were three kinds of wines in Palestine at the time. One was fermented wines. And fermented wine started off very uh, minute, if it were, as it were, of alcohol. And it would be mixed with three parts of water to dilute the, uh, the actual beverage itself. Now, the second was unfermented juice from the grape. And that simply is the fruit of the vine or grape juice. And thirdly, there was what was known as new wine. And new wine was an intoxicating drink. You remember in Acts chapter 2, we'll not go into that very deeply, but in Acts chapter 2 and verse 13, when the people that were there hearing the gospel sermon and hearing Peter and the apostles speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, you remember what they said. They said, these men are full of new wine. In other words, they're full of intoxicating drink. How do I know that's what they meant? Because the very next two verses says, like this as I paraphrase, these men are not drunken as you suppose, it's but the third hour of the day. In other words, it's an absurdity to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. So, three different wines in Palestine. Fermented wines contained a small percentage of alcohol and it was mixed with three parts of water. Unfermented juice of the grape, that simply is grape juice. And finally, there was the intoxicating drink called new wine. Now, the book of John gives eight different sign miracles. You know, if you add up all the miracles, somebody counted them up one time. Now, there's way, there was way more. But the Bible says about Jesus... And about the miracles he performed. The Bible says truly many other signs did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe, right? Of that being said, if you look in the Gospels and you don't overlap and count something twice, you will find 39 specific miracles that our Lord performed. Incidentally, the very first one that he performed is the one we're going to talk about today. Now... What made John different? Of all the miracles that Jesus performed, John records eight miracles, and eight miracles were basically the Lord's power over eight aspects of nature. For example, he turned water into wine. He healed a nobleman's son. He cured a paralytic. He fed 5,000. He walked on the sea. He gave sight to a blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And so on and so forth. And finally, he provided in the nets of his disciples all of those fish. And John records every one of those miracles. But as Jesus began his public ministry, we arrive at the very first miracle he ever performed. And it would reveal his glory. And that was the miracle of turning water into wine. 
As we notice today, we want to notice four things. Number one, we want to notice the scene. Then we want to notice the situation. Thirdly, the supply. And number four, we want to notice the significance of all of this. All right, first of all, let's talk about the scene. The scene is the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Now, interesting about this particular place, it's approximately 20 to 22 miles from the banks of Jordan. In fact, I read that Cana was a little island, as it were, or a little village, as it were, eight to nine miles from Nazareth. One historian said that on a clear day, you can be in Nazareth and you can look out and you can actually see Cana. It's kind of like this, by the way. If you go over to the coast, you know, I grew up in the Ventura area. You, you can be on the coast. You can be on the shore. If it's a clear day, you can see what's over on the other side when things are really clear. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. You can look, and from Nazareth, you can see Cana in the distance on a clear day. Now, the situation is this, or the scene is this. It is the marriage feast of, of Cana in Galilee. Now, present at the wedding ceremony was Jesus, was Mary, was his siblings, and they were all present. One scholar said it's entirely possible that whoever was getting married was related to Mary. In other words, somebody that was part of her family. Now, the question comes up, and I often wondered this too, why was this his first miracle? Why did the Lord choose this particular occasion to perform his first miracle? But I think that this really makes sense. I think, it's, uh, I think it really does make sense that this would be his first miracle, and here's why. This occasion marks a transition. Jesus is going to change in his relationship with the people around him that he knew and loved, his family. He was going to go from carpenter to Christ. He was going to go from the son of Mary to the son of God. He was going to go from a man that lived in Nazareth to the Messiah. In other words, his relationship with mankind was going to change. And on this occasion, it surely does. Let's talk about this marriage feast. I understand it was a luxurious feast. It began normally on a Wednesday. And it existed two to seven days depending on how wealthy a person was. Sometimes people left their crops unattended for two weeks. You know why? It was a very big deal. In the words of Cullen Smith, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. And it shows the importance of not only marriage, but on the wedding ceremony. Very important. People knew that it was very important too. The ceremony itself was also very, very significant. And Jesus is present there. You know, marriage is a sacred union. It goes all the way back. You remember when God created man? God created Adam and Eve. And when he created the woman, he brought the woman to the man. And he looked upon her and said, She is now bone of my bones. She's flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two of them would be one flesh. That was God-authorized, that was God-ordained, that was God-originated. But Jesus puts his sanction on it too. 
because he shows up to this event. It is designed by God. It is blessed by Jesus. You know, the ceremony is, is very important, even though society says it isn't. You know what society says? It shouldn't really matter, a piece of paper. You ever heard somebody say that? After all, in marriage, is kind of a piece of paper. If we really love each other, isn't that enough? You know, things have changed and terms have changed. I'm old enough now to say back in my day, okay? Back in my day when I was young, two people living under the same roof together out of wedlock was called shacking up. And it was looked down upon. It was a negative thing. People would hide it from others or they would embarrassingly say, well, we're, we're, we're living together. Oh, is this your wife? Oh, we're, we're living together. Now it's accepted. Now it's, oh, we're just living together. That's great. Don't you see? Don't you see the easy way that is? It's easy in and easy out. And that's not what marriage is all about. Marriage is for life. Now, we do believe in the exception of Matthew 19, but marriage is for life. Jesus said that Moses, because of the hardness of their hearts, said, all you got to do is give a writing of divorcement. But Jesus said in, in Matthew 19, but in the beginning, it was not so. I'm going to tell you something, folks. There's two decisions that you will make in your life that will greatly alter the course of your life and affect your life both physically and spiritually in both time and eternity. And here are those two decisions. Number one, to obey the gospel. Be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. That's number one. That's first and foremost. But you know what number two is? Who are you going to marry? Who are you going to marry? I knew of a young man one time that had all the ability, he still does, has all the ability in the world. And I remember there, there was somebody speaking about him and said, man, this guy's got so much ability. In fact, it was in Oklahoma when this was said. He has so much ability, he just has to marry right. That's a mouthful and that's true. You've got to marry right. Jesus put his sanction on this because it's very important. You've got to marry right. It is a union, and that union is for life. It's a time when you can stand there publicly, and you can promise to the other in the eyes of all of those that are present, witnesses, but most importantly, in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God. All right. So that's the scene. Let's talk about the situation. In verse 3, it says, When they ran out of wine... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So that's the problem. Now, remember this. Wine in that time was a staple food. And the reason for it is you couldn't always get clean water. I'm going to tell you, you have never been sick. I mean, you have never been sick unless you get bad water. Don King, you've heard me say, you know, in the Philippines years and years ago, all they had to drink, they didn't have any ice. All they had to drink was these hot Cokes. He got so sick of hot coke, you know what he decided to do? I'm going to brush my teeth. Oh, the water tastes so great. One swallow. Lost 15 pounds. There are places in the world, even today, where it's hard to get clean water. Very common that they would fail into the same category. 
So wine became a staple food. Now, there was no preservatives for the wine. And because there was no freezing or refrigeration, there was a problem sometimes that the wine did ferment and could develop intoxicating power. Now, interestingly, drunkenness, and please get this because it's really going to matter in just a little while. Drunkenness was considered a disgrace. I'm going to tell you, in my lifetime, have you, ever, have you ever seen the happy drunk? The guy that's intoxicated and he's funny and everybody's laughing. And, and, the, and the more he drinks, the funner he gets. And everybody's just really laughing. And everybody's enjoying the performance that the drunkard is putting on. Oh, how times have changed. I read one historian that said it was an absolute disgrace to be drunk. That's the reason that they diluted the two parts of wine with three parts of water. To eliminate the possibility. In other words, you had to drink gallons of the stuff to get intoxicated. Gallons. In other words, they did everything they possibly could to not have the problem. You know that's not like that today. On some bottles it says, we aged this stuff for 35 years to get her like she is now. Oh, and by the way, by the way, the older the better and all of that. I, you may not remember this, maybe you do, telling on myself here. But a lot of years ago, I gave you the little illustration, show how dumb I was. We had a, a client that was a plastic surgeon. And he bought this house and was going to remodel the house and this and that and so forth. And there was a great big wine cabinet, giant wine cabinet. And we, had to, we were doing the painting on the job, so we had to move. They asked us, will you help move it? So we said, sure, I'll help. And there was all the dust on the bottle. And I'll never forget, I pulled out a bottle. I said, I got an idea. Why don't we wipe these down and put them back in there? Boy, they're going to really be happy with us, right? And they could see that we really did a good job. Now, I'm probably the only guy that dumb, but they want the dust on the bottle to show the age. In other words, the longer the better. The entire idea is this. Prepare a beverage that has an intoxicating power and a flavor for that purpose. That's different. The wines today are different. This is called vinous fermentation, and make no mistake about it. The wines of today go through this process. And what is vinous fermentation? Vinous fermentation is this. It requires the exact proportions of sugar, yeast, and water. And the temperature has to be between 50 and 75 degrees. That is to make modern wine today. Totally different than back in Palestine, what we're talking about. That real diluted stuff that you have to drink gallons of that might have fermented a little. Now... This is not a trivial miracle in the situation. You know, if you look at the miracles that Jesus performed, they were always of practical benefit. Somebody needed to see, so Jesus made them to see. Somebody had a demon, so Jesus cast out the demon. There was a man one time that was a paralytic and he couldn't walk. And Jesus healed the bones in his leg. The benefits that Jesus did were always for practical benefit to show the glory of God in the age of miracles. 
So this particular occasion is not a trivial miracle. In fact, number one, hospitality in the east was very important and people were in need. And the Lord knew it. You know, in Eastern, when we talk about Oriental, we're just talking about Eastern. In Oriental culture at the time, hospitality was such. And it was so required. It was part of their, it was part of everything that they were about. And what would happen is if somebody is coming through town and you never met that person in your life, you not only brought them into your home if they needed it and fed them, but you also gave them a place to stay. Very important. Hospitality in the East. That's the first reason. Here's the second reason. It was a miracle of love. Jesus is there. He's somehow related. And the host was obviously embarrassed. Now, in verse 4, in verse 4, it says, Jesus said to her, when they came to Jesus and his mother said to Jesus, we are out of wine. We have no more wine. Jesus says to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. All right, first of all, first of all, what did he mean when he called her woman? Now, you know what's interesting about this term here, about woman, is the word woman comes from the Greek word gune. Now, what's interesting about that, it's the same exact word that was used when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he looked down at his mother and he looked down at John, the apostle that he loved. Do you remember what he said? He said to his mother, he said woman, meaning lady, a term of respect. He looked down and he said, woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. I just make the point because I don't want you to think as some people sometimes do, they, they use the word, or man would use the word woman, talking to a woman almost in a condescending form or fashion. Have you ever heard the saying that the Greeks had a word for it? Greeks had all manner of words to describe every little specific thing. We are limited in the English language. The best word that describes the Greek word gune is the word lady. And it's a term of Respect. You know, I think it's very important because Mary did no longer need a son here. Mary needed a savior. He doesn't call her mother because she needed a savior. And the relationship between Jesus and Mary was now changed forever. And make no mistake about it as... I guess, contrary to what's found in some religious affiliations, Mary was not co-redeemer with Jesus. Mary needed Jesus just like you and I. And they could put up all the statues in the world and bow before her. And I'm going to tell you, it's all vain and meaningless. She needed Jesus just like you and I need Jesus. Jesus says, in a very respectful way, he calls her lady. Now, here's a phrase here. What does your concern have to do with me? Now, I'm going to tell you, some scholars will say what this means is, what this means is, that's your problem, not mine. But stay with me. In the Greek, the actual phrase reads like this, translated straight from the Greek. What is there for you and me? In other words, 
It is this. What do we have in common? What Jesus was saying is, what do we have in common? He wasn't saying that's your problem. Don't bother me with it. He was saying it's my problem and I'm going to take care of it when my hour has come or when it's time. Now, did, did Mary get the message? Yes, she did. That's, this is why I know this is exactly what Jesus said. Because the very next verse. She turns to the servants. And she says, whatever he does, or whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says, do it. That brings us to our third point. So we got the scene. We got the situation. They're out of wine. And now we're going to look at the supply. You know, this is really amazing to me because in verse 6, it says they got six water pots of stone. I don't know about you, but in my mind's eye, I go back and try to figure out where they got all the water. It had to have come out of a well. It had to come out of a stream. It had to come out of a spring. It had to come from something other than hooking the hose up and running a hose out there and filling up these water pots. And we're not talking about little water pots, we're talking about those that carried a lot of volume. In fact, these were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. Do you know why that is significant? It is extremely significant because the Jews thought it very important to keep themselves cleansed before they ate. Mark 7 and 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, observing the tradition of the elders. In other words, it was very common. They, th they thought, you know what, we got to wash our hands. And sometimes they would have these barrels or these, whatever you want to call them, pots. And they would be full of water and people would wash their face, they'd wash their hands, and they'd wash their feet. So no doubt there were these six pots and that's why they were there. Now, notice how big they were. Each one of these contained 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, if there's six of them, and you fill them to the brim, that is 120 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. Again, they didn't have a faucet. little side note here, though. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't just perform the miracle? Why did he tell them to go fill the pots? I think he told them to go fill the pots for the same reason as when Jesus was standing there in John chapter 11 and Lazarus was in the tomb and Jesus says, take away the stone. I think it's for the same reason that he told the man in John chapter 9 after he put the clay to his eyes, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. In other words, Jesus never did what man could do for himself. And if man, by way of obedience, could do it, Jesus required it. And you know that's exactly the same today. The Lord in your life, now there are no miracles today, but the Lord in your life requires you to do everything that you can with whatever's in your power. And he will not do your part. And we can't do his. Sometimes we get under duress and stress and worry because we're trying to do his part. And don't think for a minute that he's going to take the trivial things that we can do off of our plate. We have to do our part too. Jesus says, go fill them. 120 gallons you got now. 120 gallons of water. Now, 
They were filled all the way to the brim, according to verse 7. Jesus says, fill the pots with water, and they did so all the way to the brim. Verse 8, now, th these next three verses are going to go quickly. He said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the word master is talking about the, from the Greek word that means head waiter. Now, I want to set this tone here. The head waiter never knew who performed the miracle or where it came from, right? He never knew. Jesus says, dip some out to the servants. Have you ever stopped to consider the very fact that the servants saw Jesus perform this miracle and it did not faze them at all? Not a bit. Not a bit. You would think when you see someone do what Jesus did and save the day and perform this great miracle, they just brought water, Jesus turned it into wine. We'll talk about what that was in a minute. Jesus says, dip some out and take it to the master, the head waiter. And they do. But they're completely unfazed. That brings us to verse number 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. In other words, the day is saved, we're in good shape again, and that brings us to verse number 10. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior... You have kept the good wine until now. And by the way, this is not a question. This is a statement. Let me tell you what it means. It was very customary. When the guest arrived, you get the good stuff out first. And you give the good stuff to all the people. And then when they had well drunk, talk about that in a minute too, what that meant. Then you bring out the inferior stuff. Jesus performed this miracle. Let me just say, if the Lord made it, it was good. If the Lord made it, it was great. So here the head waiter, he looks at this stuff, he tastes it. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We were supposed to have the good stuff first. This stuff is so great, you waited until after the inferior was brought out. In other words, it was probably good stuff too, but not like the Lord made, and he knew the difference. Now, what kind of wine was it? This really matters, folks. The Greek word wine is the word oinos. And because it's the word oinos, many claim it to be alcoholic. Because oinos can be connected to an alcoholic beverage. But it's not limited to that. It includes that. It's not limited to that. In fact, the word oinos is a generic word. And it includes all kinds of wine. Notice this. Also, it includes all stages of the juice of the grape. Sometimes even the clusters of grapes are called oinos. And even the vine itself is sometimes referred to as Oinos. You know what people do, though? People go, oh, yeah, I, I read the, I looked in the lexicon. There it is right there. Oinos. Oin yep, that's wine. Alcohol. It's a generic term, and it meant many things. But stay with me. Now, I think it's begging the whole question to assert that it was intoxicating. 
I really do. The narrative is silent to the point, so the character of the wine can only be determined by the following. The occasion, the material used, the person making the wine, and the moral influence of the miracle. The character of the wine determines what it was. Now, obviously the occasion, it's a wedding. Material used, oh, it's water. The person making the wine, it was Jesus. And by the way, we're talking about our Creator. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Jesus was part of all the creation and everything. He was able to do that, take water and create this miracle. What's the moral influence? It's determined by the character of the wine. The moral influence of the miracle is determined by what kind of wine that it is. Now, one scholar said this. Please notice. He said, Is it not derogatory to the character of Christ and His teachings of the Bible to suppose that He exerted His miraculous power to produce at least 120 gallons of intoxicating wine? You know, in today's common vernacular, I mean, I, I don't know. Seriously? I mean, re, re, you really think that? You really think that Jesus, who was flawless and perfect in every way, would have made 120 gallons of mind-altering liquor? When the Bible says this about it, stay with me now. It's a mocker. It is biting like a serpent. It stings like an adder. It's the poison of dragons. It's the cruel venom of asps. That's what the Bible says about it. You think Jesus made 120 gallons of that stuff? Well, surely not. I heard somebody say one time that if you have, and by the way, this was a very nice man, and he was actually what you would consider one of those connoisseurs, a wine connoisseur. He was wrong. He said, if you take grape juice and you leave it alone, and then over time, it becomes something. It turns into something. And it's actually very good. And he said it turns into what is known as sweet wine. But science teaches that when, the fer when by fermentation the sugar is turned into alcohol, the sweetness of the juice is gone. The sweet means, as the lexicon state, unfermented wine. Alcoholic wine, remember, needs exact proportions of sugar, yeast, and water, and with a temperature that's kept between 50 and 75 degrees. Let's go further. A French chemist wrote this. Nature never forms spiritous liquors. She rots the grape upon the branch, but it is art that converts the juice into alcoholic wine. Dr. Henry, Henry Monroe said, Alcohol is nowhere to be found in any product of nature. Was never created by God, but is especially an artificial thing prepared by man through the destructive process of fermentation. All right. What about this right here? That means you don't get butter from the udder and you don't get wine from the vine. Man has to do something to it to make it what those beverages really are. Well, let's talk about this. 
this phrase right here, when the guests have well drunk. I've actually heard this interpreted when they were really intoxicated and feeling good. You think Jesus would have done that? They're bombed out of their mind. And then here comes the good stuff. No. The language here, folks, is very simple. When the guests have well drunk, it doesn't mean intoxicated. It means they consumed a lot. When they had consumed a lot of the stuff that they already had, then here came the stuff that Jesus made. All right, very quickly, what about the moderation argument? Heard this my whole life. You ever heard somebody say, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Just do it in moderation. Had people say, in fact, everything's okay in life, just in moderation. Well, there are some things in life that are fine in moderation. What about this particular argument? And one of the passages that they cite is found in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter in the 13th verse, where Paul says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness. Now, please stay with me on this. People sometimes interpret this passage to mean that this and what is being condemned is getting drunk. And a little bit's okay. Well, folks, from the same passage, please watch. If drunkenness in moderation is okay, then revelry, those drunken parties in moderation are okay too. Lewdness, it's bad, so just do it in moderation. Lust, the Bible says when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin when it's finished brings forth death, so just do that in moderation. Strife, terrible thing. Bible condemns it, so just do it in moderation. Envy, we're not to envy another. So just do that in moderation too. You see, folks, it's the same thing. It's all the same thing. The best way for a child of God to avoid drunkenness is to have nothing to do with alcoholic beverages and the alcohol that produces it. I'll tell you this, every alcoholic in the world came from a mild participant or a mild drinker. It all started there. So the rule is touch not, taste not, and handle not. Now remember, being drunk was a disgrace. And what did Jesus make? Remember that country song a couple years ago? I think it was Miranda Lambert. I heard Jesus, he drank wine, and I bet we'd get along just fine. What actually did Jesus make on that day? Well, what he made is what he drank. One scholar and historian said this, The wine that Christ drank in which he made for the wedding was the pure blood of the grape. His example gave no sanction to others who used intoxicating wines. So, what did he use, folks? He used the pure blood of the grape. It wasn't fermented. It wasn't spoiled. It was delicious. It tasted so good that the master, the waiter, tasted it and said, this stuff is the good stuff. It was not an intoxicant at all. And that brings us to our final verse, the significance of this whole thing. Do you remember when I said that the servants were unfazed? I'm just about finished. The servants were unfazed. What happens here? This beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I want to make this final little point here. 
You know that happens today. We have a gospel meeting. We have a lot of folks come. We preach the gospel. And people see what they need to do to be saved. They see what the Lord wants them to do and what the Lord did for them and all that. And they just walk away. Jesus performs this miracle and the servants saw the whole thing and they just walked away. People sometimes hear sermons about things that they need to do in their life to correct their life so they can go to heaven. Because they've gone back into the ways of sin. But then they just walk away. It's nothing new. But. What about the people that really want the truth? What about the people that want to feed on the word of God? That's kind of what gospel meetings have become. You know, we don't baptize a whole lot of folks during gospel meetings anymore. But I'm going to tell you, the church is strengthened. That's exactly what happened here. His disciples believed in him. And that's what it's all about when we hear the word of God. When we are members of the body of Christ, we are strengthened by the word of God to go out there, face the world, and be better in the future than we've ever been in days gone by. Turning water into wine, the very first miracle that Jesus performed, and his disciples believed in him.